Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later in the program from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, investigative reporter Alan Judd joins me. His latest piece is about an attorney once working in Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's administration who alleges she was fired for flagging potential violations of state and federal law regarding Kemp's handling of the pandemic. Plus, we'll hear how a local Atlanta-based staffing company is helping to send nurses throughout the country during the pandemic and during a time where this nation is really in need of nurses. All that's next. But first, this unofficial results show two Republicans have won seats in the Georgia House after special election runoffs were held Tuesday. Toombs County Republican Party Chairman Lisa Hagan, no relation to our very own WAB reporter, beats auto dealer Wally Sapp in District 156. Now that's in southeast Georgia. Also, Republican Ambulance Company Executive Devon Sebo defeated Democrat artist and educator Priscilla Smith in House District 34, which includes parts of Kennesaw and Marietta in Cobb County. In other news, the DeKalb County School District has changed its mask policy just weeks before school begins, which is August 2nd. The school system will now require elementary school students to wear face coverings in buildings and on buses. Now, DeKalb relaxed its mask mandate last month, but modified it this week since students on the age of 12 can't get vaccinated yet. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, of course, right here in Atlanta, recently issued guidance for schools, which said students who haven't received the COVID-19 vaccine should wear face coverings inside. And finally. It was his lightning quick wrists that propelled his powerful swing. But it was his grace, humility, perseverance, and courage that so profoundly resonated beyond the baseball diamond and inspired so many others to chase their dreams. A tribute to Atlanta's own Henry Hank Aaron prior to the start of Major League Baseball's All-Star Game played last night at Coors Field in Colorado. As a player, Hank Aaron was a 25-time All-Star, the most of any player in history That includes, of course, his first 11 All-Star seasons with the Milwaukee Braves and then nine with the Atlanta Braves and back again with the Milwaukee then Brewers in his final All-Star appearance. Aaron's family was in attendance last night and Mrs. Billy Aaron was escorted to the field by players. Through their lifelong charitable initiatives, Hank and Billy Aaron's support for education, medicine, historically black colleges and universities, and countless youth programs will leave a legacy for generations to come. Also, the number 44 was etched in right field. That was Hank Aaron's uniform number. Couldn't keep a dry eye during that tribute. And I still get chills upon hearing Braves broadcaster Milo Hamilton with the call. 
He's sitting on 714. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 715. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. I was glad that I did it. I was glad that I had the chance to do it. And I did it in spite of all of the things that happened to me. crowd is cheering Henry Aaron, the home run king of all time. 715. You're listening to Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. States throughout the nation, including Georgia, are currently experiencing a shortage of nurses. According to the most recent data from the Bureau of Health Workforce, Georgia actually ranks the fifth lowest in the country and just has a little over 108,000 nurses. To put that in perspective, that's roughly 10 nurses per 1,000 people. And the growing national need for health care workers existed before the pandemic, but the global health crisis has exacerbated the shortage. Snap Nurse is an Atlanta-based tech-enabled staffing platform that has been working to respond to the shortage. And joining me now, Cherie Gloss, the founder and chief executive officer for Snap MedTech, which is the parent company for Snap Nurse. She joins me now to talk all about this. Cherie, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Let's begin here because I read a report that projects, and take a listen to this, that 1.2 million new registered nurses will be needed by 2030 to address this current shortage. How much truth is in that? Very true. In fact, um, has to do with the aging baby boomers that are now, you know, uh, in a lot of the hospitals um, as they get sicker in their old age combined with less nurses going into the field and a lot of older nurses retiring. So it's kind of like the perfect storm of, of just um, a shortage occurring. You spent more than 17 years in the healthcare industry. Tell our listeners what you were doing. Yes, I went to Emory University School of Medicine here in Atlanta and worked as an anesthetist for 17 years and uh, worked all around the different Metro Atlanta hospitals delivering anesthesia. Obviously, I know you have friends and colleagues who were nurses. Did they ever talk to you about either burnout or the stress or the workload that comes with being a nurse? Oh yeah, definitely. Not only from my days of working in the hospital, but as a owner of a nurse staffing agency, it's very taxing um, day after day to 
to work in, um, especially last year in some conditions where they saw a lot of disease and death. Um, it does wear on you. And um, I've not seen a lot of burnout, but I've definitely seen a lot of weariness. We have talked to uh, officials with, I think, Clayton State University have talked about initiatives and, and more programs to get folks interested in the nursing industry. Do you think, it, obviously, when we talk about increasing the pipeline, should it even start before uh, folks are, are thinking about in, in college? Should we start thinking about maybe introducing high school students to a possible career in, in nursing? Yes, absolutely. When I went to high school, um, nursing was a pretty big focus. You know, I'm a lot older than <laughs> a lot of that generation, but um, I think it's just kind of died out the, in favor in a lot of um, high schools aren't promoting it as much as they should, but it's a terrific profession mm -hmm. with fairly high wages now. I mean, we have most of our nurses making six figures. Um, and I think just a lot of people have a um, stereotype of a nurse that they need to get over. Like you what? know, for example, um, that all nurses are women. You know, I think it's okay for a man to be a nurse. Um, in fact, we have uh, just hundreds of, of male nurses and um, and also that they uh, don't make a lot of money. I think that people think nurses are, you know, making, you know, $10, $12 an hour mm -hmm. and they're not, you know, there's some nurses, you know, making upwards of, you know, 70 an hour. When you think about what you just talked about, particularly with the pandemic and how this pandemic has highlighted not only the importance of our healthcare workers, but also to the stress that comes along with that, through what you have been doing and you've been speaking with the nurses, what suggestions or what have you heard from them that they would need in terms of mental resources or just any other resources that they would, they, they would like to have in this industry? Well, I think the one thing that SNAP nurse offers um, is a lot of flexibility in their schedule. Mm -hmm. So when they need to take time off, they can, and then they can jump back into working when they're, you know, mentally ready to work. And so we've seen a lot of nurses do that, take, you know, a week or two in between assignments to just go to Jamaica or spend time with their family. And then they feel rejuvenated and ready to get back out and start working. They actually Nurses are such hard workers that they actually get bored when they don't work. <laughs> and then it's like, I'm dying to get back in the field. Put me back in, you know. Um, so I think that's the nature of some of, especially our nurses, mm -hmm. you know, they want to work hard, um, but they do get tired. So make sure they take breaks, make sure hospitals give them enough um, time off or PTO so that they can take the breaks when they need them. Also, I would say, making sure the ratios inside the hospitals are adequate so mm -hmm. that they don't are not overburdened with too many patients. Let's talk about SNAP Nurse and how all this came together. How long have y'all been around? We were started in 2017 and uh, we're essentially born and raised here in Atlanta. <laughs> and so uh, started just a small market in Atlanta, but now we're in 27 states. Mm -hmm. We're a healthcare staffing agency, and meaning we don't just do nurses, but 
other healthcare professionals now as well. And I know, uh, Sheree, when you started SNAP Nurse, which is, a, you know, under SNAP MedTech, there was nothing in there about what to do when there's a pandemic. So as this started to unfold last year, I imagine a lot of people, not just here in Georgia, but throughout the nation reaching out because it w- it became apparent pretty soon, pretty quickly that the need for healthcare workers was going to be just extremely high. Yeah, it was a pretty big shock when we used to get orders of, you know, five, 10 nurses from each facility to 50 to 100 nurses per facility in, you know, March and April. That's where we started to see um, the pandemic numbers really start to hit. Um, So that was a a big shock to SNAP nurse. And um, also we were never in long-term care Mm -hmm. and that was a really big um, piece of that got hit uh, pretty hard during the pandemic. So we entered into that sector during the pandemic as well. What was that like for you? Long-term care was very tough on um, the on us um, because of the there was a lot of burnout there because of all the death. Um, it was hard to handle. Um, but, you know, you can imagine that was the population that was hit the hardest. Mm-hmm. Um, as a growing business, when we were growing multiples month over month, it was very taxing on our staff, um, and we had to multiply the numbers of um, our staff by you know double, triple every single month in order to meet the demand. But, but we did it, and we wouldn't have been able to do it without the technology kind of doing a lot of the work. So luckily, we had the technology built before the pandemic hit. Let's talk about that, because this is a, a almost like an app-based platform, correct? Yeah, so the technology helps us to onboard the nurses, credential them, um, do like electronic time cards, and then at the end of an approved shift um, and the approved time card, they are get paid immediately. So all of our nurses get paid at the end of their shift, and that's one of our differentiators. And I imagine that also makes a difference in in folks who that you are able to bring on board because with most staffing companies, look, I remember working for a staffing company decades ago, and you had to wait till the end of the week to go pick up your check. <laughs> Things have changed. Yeah, with the gig economy mindset, you know, with um, – you have Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, and a lot of them get paid immediately after they've finished a job. And so this, we knew that going into building our tech platform, and that was the first thing we built, is the ability to get paid at the end of every shift. And when I was a nurse working, I remember um, there was one place that paid me a paper check at the end of every shift. Mm-hmm. And I just remember always wanted to go there, even though it was $5 less an hour. <laughs> just really... <laughs> Wanted to get my paper check in my hand. <laughs> I totally understand that. I think we've all been there. Give me my money. Let me ask you this, because since last year, has it, and obviously now with the vaccines being available, but has it slowed at all? Or is there still a high demand for nurses and that you all are able to provide the staff for, whether it's here in Georgia or throughout the nation? So in terms of the vaccines, um, we were part of the mass deployment, um, not necessarily in Georgia, but in some other states. Um, and they, they have largely stepped those down because of demand. Um, but what we've done is we've pivoted to trying to reach the underserved and the homebound. And we now have mobile van uh, vaccination services that go out to 
um, to reach the underserved areas. Uh, a lot of the communities that you live more than 60 miles away from a mass vaccination site. And what is the average, I guess, length of time for, I guess, for lack of a better word, an assignment here for a nurse through your agency? So our agency does both PRN per diem, which means they can pick up a couple shifts a month, all the way to working like 13 weeks in a row or more. Um, so it's very flexible if they only want to work. Um, it just like they might work three twelves at their normal job and want to pick up extra shifts. Then they can get on our platform to work, you know, a couple days extra. Um, but if they want to go somewhere or and or just be a contract nurse here in Georgia, then they can pick up longer, anywhere from eight to 13 week sh- um, contract assignments. The voice you hear, Cherie Gloss, she's the founder and CEO of Snap Med Tech, the parent company for Snap Nurse. And we're talking about what their agency does in order to help fulfill the shortage of nurses. And Cherie, I got to ask you, I'm also curious, are there any particulars or specific areas within healthcare that they need nurses. I imagine maybe ICU or emergency room. Right. That's one of the things I always mention to people is there's not necessarily a nurse shortage. There's a shortage of specialized nurses. Mm-hmm. A lot of nurses that come out of, med- of uh, nursing school, they can't get a job because they're not trained in certain specialties. So I would say that ICU is the biggest one. I mean, if you were an ICU nurse during the pandemic, there was no way you were making less than $100 an hour. <laughs> there was there was like so much need for them. Um, ICU, ER, and OR mm-hmm. are probably the three specialties that are in highest demand at SNAP Nurse. How do you all reach then the folks that you want to, to come on board? What is your, I guess, your marketing or what is your strategy there? Yeah, interestingly enough, we only had um, one marketing person at our company last year, and we used uh, Facebook marketing as well as um, word of mouth and referrals. And we we were now one hundred seventy five thousand uh, dollars, one hundred seventy five thousand workers now in our database. Really? Prior to the yes. pandemic, how many did you have? Prior to the pandemic, we had twenty five thousand. Wow. What does that say to you? Uh, Well, what happened during the pandemic is a lot of people got furloughed from the hospitals and also they were seeing a lot of the contract um, rates a lot higher than where they were at the current hospital they were working at. So they wanted to try what we call travel nursing. Mm -hmm. And um, and this started travel nursing. joined our company and then now that the pandemic is over they can't get rid of the daily payments and the flexibility and they're essentially not going back now do you all contract with the health facility and then obviously that's how you all then are able to pay the, the nurses who are who are working through your app that you all are giving assignments to Yes, we do direct contracts with the facilities, and then um, we just make sure that we ca- uh, count the travel and the housing in that price. Um, but the, the for the hospitals, in a way, some of them have used large-scale numbers of agency mm-hmm. workers um, because they don't have to pay um, them benefits. So it's um, 
in some ways, it can be economical. What other, other than the pay, what else are you all offering? And then you talked about the flexibility that the person has in terms of deciding how how long they want to work. What other, I guess, incentives do you think you have that are really attractive to folks who want to come on board as nurses or work as nurses, excuse me? Well, our pay is definitely higher um, than the average agency. And because we can pay them a little more because our technology allows for us to make a little um, more spread as we have a very low overhead um, to put nurses into the field. Um, So better pay, flexible hours, um, the ability to get paid at the end of their shift and lots of locations if they wanted to try going to San Diego, Mm -hmm. they could try that out. So adventure is part of that as well. And I'm curious, Sherry, are there particular states? I know early on we know that New York and obviously in California were, were hit really, really hard. Are there Were there some states that you all had just a, a large request for nurses from? Yes, definitely. Um, California and Florida um, were hit pretty hard during the pandemic, and that's where we had a large focus of, of our work. What do you hope you see SNAP Nurse in, let's say, a year from now in terms of the growth of your your company? Yes, we do plan to expand to other verticals, like, for example, physicians. Um, Right now, we've already expanded to LPNs, which are licensed practical nurses Mm -hmm. and certified nurse assistants. So expanding more of the healthcare verticals and more states. And when we started this conversation, we talked about the mental resources that, and not just our nurses, but everyone, particularly our, our first responders and those who have been on the front line during this pandemic. Um, and I gave you that number about what was estimated, the number of nurses that we needed by 2030 to address what's considered a current shortage. 1.2 million new registered nurses. You see that being feasible? Well, I would say there has to be a lot of things put into action now to be able to meet that demand. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think states need to start taking it a little bit more seriously, Um, whether that be scholarships to high school students that want to go to nursing school um, and even uh, specialty training schools where once they exit nursing school, they can then train in a specialty that is, you know, of highest need. Sharika Loss is the founder and chief executive officer for Snap Med Tech, which is the parent company for Snap Nurse. And we've been talking about how their company, how their agency, staffing agency, has been deploying nurses throughout the nation during this pandemic. Sheree, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate a good conversation. Thank you very much, Rose. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. An attorney working in Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's administration alleges she was fired for what she calls flagging, quote, potential violations of state and federal law 
regarding Kemp's handling of the pandemic last year when all this unfolded. But there's a lot more to this saga, as we'll discover. Join me now from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, longtime investigative journalist, Good report, reporter. Haven't seen you in a while. Alan Judd joins Hi. me. Good to see you. You too. Thanks. I think last time I saw you, we were in the press club. I think that's right. And then you also covered the Atlanta Public Schools cheating scandal and all that. Yeah, and, I along did. Along with Christina. and mm-hmm. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it, Alan? It seems like a lifetime ago at this point. <laughs> Do you miss sitting uh, in those long school board meetings? No. <laughs> Neither do I. Um, but let's, there is lots to pack, unpack here, so I want to lay out all of the major players uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the story or who haven't read your published pieces yet. First, who is Jennifer Dalton? Let's start there. Um, she is a uh, career government lawyer in, in state government in Georgia. In October of last year, she became the general counsel of the State Department of Public Health, which, of course, is responsible for responding to the pandemic, among many other things. Uh, she had spent a long time with the Attorney General's office in Georgia, uh, you know, was a uh, well, well-respected, well-thought-of attorney who, um, you know, at that point, I think she was 61 years old. She's looking, you know, toward retirement in a few years and really was, you know, moving ahead in that direction. Um, and then she took over that job at, at DPH in October um, a- after several other people had actually been in the job in recent years. They kind of had a lot of turnover for various reasons. And so now, t- t- for Claire to hear, was she brought in specifically to deal with whatever was going to happen with the pandemic and in terms of procedures and measures and anything that the state wanted to implement, was that her role? Yeah, that was a lot, a large part of it. She, uh, of course, was uh, you know re- would do legal review on contracts, and, and there were a lot of contracts at that time because of pandemic mm-hmm. uh, re- relief. The federal government sent in a great deal of money that DPH had to spend, and generally spent pretty quickly because of of the nature of the crisis. And Alan, to whom did Miss Dalton directly report to? Um, she reported to Dr. Kathleen Toomey, the Commissioner of Public Health, um, who has been sort of, you know, in many ways the face of the response to the pandemic in Georgia. And, but then, as you all reveal, and according to Miss Dalton, quote, almost immediately, however, Dalton began objecting to what she calls potential violations of state and federal law by the agency and its commissioner, Dr. Kathleen Toomey. Let's dissect this a little further. When you say, when she says almost immediately, what was she seeing as a, quote, potential violations of state and federal law here? So the department had uh, received a great number of open records requests under the State Open Records Act, um, including one from from us uh, that, that was trying to, uh, to obtain um emails between Dr. Toomey and the governor and the governor's staff. We had filed that in May of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, the law essentially says that agencies have to respond within three days. Mm-hmm. We didn't really think that was realistic in that case because it was a fairly large request, but still nothing happened. They ignored it and they ignored a lot of other requests. Uh, first, they said that the law didn't apply during the the public health crisis, which our lawyers kind of uh, dissuaded them from. 
Um, then they asked for a fairly substantial amount of money for the retrieval. And then we paid that and nothing happened. They just sat on it for, again for many months. And she came in trying to clear up that backlog and f- comply with the law. So let's back up because I know listeners are saying, well, this is you put your first request in back in May of 2020. Right. And what information were you all seeking at the AJC? Really, we were looking for insight into how the governor was making decisions, especially around the idea of at first, as you may remember, he, he was one of the very last governors who imposed lockdown restrictions. Mm-hmm. Uh back in the early part of the pandemic and then very quickly he was he was the first actually to begin lifting those restrictions and it, we wanted to see what was what was the thinking that went in went into that um what kind of advice he was getting from the experts like Dr. Toomey and whether he was actually following that advice or whether he was um moving forward on either economic grounds or even political grounds. And so you all put in that first request in May of 2020. Alan, when did you start receiving any documents? So after uh, Ms. Dalton became general counsel, she uh, created a new system of handling those requests, I think brought in some outside help, uh, paralegals and people of that nature. We finally received uh, about 15,000 pages of emails um, at the very end of January of this year. So that was roughly eight months later. And then from that point, you all start digging through this, start reading. What did you, what did you see? What did you read? We eventually published a story in, in March mm-hmm. that, based on those emails that that found that the governor despite saying otherwise really had not followed the advice of of dr toomey or other experts including the white house coronavirus task force he had moved forward with with these uh, with lifting these restrictions without really a lot of scientific evidence to back up the the claims that the virus was was getting better the pandemic was under control um, it also showed that a lot of the public statements that Dr. Toomey was making actually were drafted by the governor's staff, um, and essentially a lot of what she was saying was not what was happening in reality. In fact, Alan, you wrote, and I'm going to quote you here, quote, throughout the worst public health crisis in a century, Kemp repeatedly disregarded advice from Toomey, federal scientists, and other experts an examination by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution found. Right. Did you also discover that there were people who were responding to the governor saying, look, you may want to not do this, or are you really, do you really want to do this, and so forth? Yeah, definitely. Uh, really, one of the more uh, telling exchanges in, in the emails was when Dr. Toomey instructed a pre, one of Dalton's predecessors as general counsel instructed her to to write her objections to the governor's lawyer uh, because apparently there was no direct communication there, mm-hmm. um, and that was about one of the particular uh, reopenings. I believe that one was about live music venues and mm-hmm. entertainment venues, and literally saying, the, you know, the 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 pandemic is not getting better. Uh, cases are up, deaths are up, 
but they went forward with that anyway. We are going to take a quick break, and, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Alan Judd from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, including we'll try to reveal whether or not y'all even got a response from the Georgia Department of Public Health, whether it's Governor Brian Kemp or Dr. Kathleen Toomey. We're back in a moment. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. If you're just tuning in, I'm in conversation with Alan Judd from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, longtime investigative reporter. And we're talking about a story just recently published this week regarding an attorney working in Georgia Governor Brian Kemp's administration who alleges she was fired for flagging potential violations of state and federal law regarding how Governor Kemp handled the pandemic and allegedly ignored advice of experts. Uh, did you all, I, and I know you all, because y'all are thorough over there at the AJC, you, you reached out to Governor Kemp's office, you reached out to Dr. Kathleen Toomey. Did anybody respond? Uh, no, other than to say that they could not speak because of the potential for litigation. Which is where we're moving into next in our conversation right, now. Right. But before we get to that, though, so you all published that piece back in March, and then something happened to Mrs. Dalton. Right. So around the same time that that we were preparing that that um, that story, there was a uh, contract issue that came up in um, in DPH of an attempt to award a no-bid contract worth $14 million for a vaccination appointment system mm-hmm. um, call center. And the lobbyist for the company that was receiving that contract was Lewis Massey, who was Georgia's Secretary of State back in the 90s mm-hmm. for a few years. Um, and as it happens, apparently his family is close to Dr. Toomey in some way. We don't know a lot about that. But during that time, Dr. Toomey, even amid the height of the pandemic, assigned Jennifer Dalton to research a private legal matter on behalf of Mr. Massey's parents. Um, it had nothing to do with the coronavirus, had nothing to do with the Department of Public Health. But she was given this assignment by Dr. Dr. Toomey. Right, right. And then when she raised objections to speeding ahead on the contract, without any kind of competitive bidding, Dr. Toomey apparently yelled at her and said, just get it done. Now, let's back up for a moment, because we know that through executive order, some things change as it relates to Governor Kemp's authority or the state's authority. Do we know if awarding no bid contracts was a part of that because we were in a public health crisis and maybe it's not enough time to thoroughly vet all? But look, you're talking about a $14 million uh, contract? You might want to. <laughs> right. Um, th- there, there is a pr- process for emergency contracting. However, in this case, the, the company, and I guess Mr. Massey on their behalf, had actually approached the state as far back as October of last year to, um, with a proposal to do this without anybody else, any other company, having an opportunity to make that, to make that, that pitch. Um, so it was in the works for a long time, and one, one of Ms. Dalton's points 
uh, has been that they could have bid this out in the normal process mm-hmm. and it would have been produced or concluded just as quickly as it was on an emergency basis. That By declaring it an emergency contract did not speed it up. It only eliminated competition. Mrs. Dalton was fired, and through her words, or through her attorney's words, what was this process? How did it come down? Um, so she had a, a, had objected to that contract. She had uh, apparently refused to do some redactions on the emails that we received um, that, sh- that would have been uh, embarrassing or sensitive to Dr. Toomey and the governor. And then f- four days after my story ran in March, she was actually fired immediately and, and took taken out of the building immediately, escorted out by security. Um, she the, the the official reason was that she had been on a six month probationary period as a new employee at the department, despite the fact that she had all this experience in state government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they said that she didn't fulfill the probationary probationary period. And they immediately fired her. We know Georgia is an employment at will state, but there are also whistleblower laws. What is Ms. Dalton alleging as to why she was fired? I mean, she says it is because she refused to to take part in what she considered either unethical or or illegal activity. Did you get a chance to speak with her? You've been co- uh, communicating with her attorney. No, uh, she is not speaking about it publicly. She's not a really very public person. You know, mm-hmm. this is she's a career government lawyer who has worked behind the scenes for all these years, and by all accounts, has done a good job everywhere she's been. Alan, did she, or do you know if she had any conversations with Governor Brian Kemp at all? throughout this process not that we know of but she was called into the governor's office to meet with david dove who is the executive counsel to the governor his his chief lawyer um and mr dove according to miss dalton suggested that she resign from the department of public health and then after a 60-day period she could apply for a part-time job in state government that uh, did not have either the same level of pay that she had received and did not have benefits, including her retirement. Alan, I have a question from a listener who wants to know, in those 15,000-plus documents that you all received at the AJC, was there any correspondence with uh, Governor Kemp and the White House about how Georgia was handling the pandemic? Not directly between between the governor and the White House, but there was a lot of correspondence between uh, the White House task force and members of the governor's staff, people who are who were advising him on on the pandemic. Were you able to, if you can, do you recall if there was any correspondence from any any business associations, business agencies stressing that we need to be open? Any, I guess, any agency or entity that might have been stressing the importance of economics over lives. Here. Yeah, there were there there, there were. Uh, lots of emails like that of people who um, either wanted to to get the, the business reopened mm-hmm. or, in many cases, it was people who were offering their services uh, for, for money uh, without, um, you know, without really a solicitation ahead of that. They just simply thought they might have something that the state would want to buy from them. 
<laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. <laughs> oh, excuse me for laughing. That's okay. So, just to be clear, there is, and, but that information is is redacted. We don't know for whom that per, the entity is, do we? In some cases, we do. In some cases, we don't. Well, in the cases we do, can you <laughs> shed some light on that? Um, and I know you don't have the documents here, so yeah, I want to be fair. There was um, um, a company that, um, and I actually don't remember what service they were trying to, to mm-hmm. offer. And in fact, this never went through, so it's kind of not not. Uh, particularly maybe important, but they made a point of saying in the, in their letter that one of the principals of their company was the son of Ben Carson, the uh, at that time the HUD secretary. Yes. Um, and that somehow that gave him some qualifications to help Georgia respond to the pandemic. Alan, also, do you can you recall if there were from public health agencies or, or even uh, medical school uh, presidents or deans are uh, pleading with the governor or the administration to really rethink about opening up too soon because lives were at stake? I imagine yeah, there had to be some emails. Definitely, about that. That, that's true. Um, in fact, there was a member of the state board of public health who wrote to Dr. Toomey, and, and it was forwarded on to the governor's office, who just pleaded almost with with them to not go forward with this. Dr. Toomey also received emails from uh, physicians around the state, or at least I recall one in particular who said to her that her failure to stand up for public health in that situation was going to tarnish her legacy as a public health professional. And throughout all of this, Alan, does it appear, I mean, and, and I'm asking you through your lens as a longtime reporter and investigative journalist here, that does it appear that maybe Dr. Toomey and some others, maybe they just, their hands were tied, so to speak, um, because at the, at the end of all of this, it is the governor's decision. That's, that's correct. Um, you know, a lot of people that I've talked to were, were upset that she did not push back more, either publicly and apparently not even very much privately, mm-hmm. um, that not that we've been able to see. They really thought that she should not have given in to the political pressure. What else stood out to you or to your colleagues at the AJC after going through all? You know, I, you all went went through all of these fifteen thousand documents, right? How much? First of all, how much did y'all pay for that? I think it was like twenty seven hundred dollars. Not dropping a bucket for the AJC, right? Uh, used to used to be. <laughs> I definitely understand that. What else stood out for you, though? Um, they there was a lot of information that was readily available during the time that the governor was was relaxing restrictions that showed that that the pandemic actually was getting worse. That mm-hmm. that there was not movement in the right direction. Uh, there was daily reports really that showed. The trends, but some of that was was actually withheld from the public. It was uh, deemed confidential at the time, and we didn't know some of the real facts of what was happening. But are you referring to the actual reporting of hospitalizations, deaths, infections? Those that particular data, not, not the material that they publish every day, okay. but but more. Um, things about actual outbreaks, specific outbreaks that were occurring in di- different parts of the state, different kinds of businesses. Um, there were, you know, outbreaks in car dealerships and banks mm-hmm. and, you know, various businesses. I, I, one law firm had a, an outbreak where apparently almost everybody got sick. 
Um, but those kinds of things were, were withheld from the public throughout, the, especially the first few months of the pandemic. Alan, have you all received any other uh, reports from anyone who also worked in the administration? Maybe they want to remain anonymous so far with your reporting, or right now you're just relying on the data that you've been able to receive? Um, we, we have. We have. I mean, nothing that's, that's uh, at a point of being published at this point. What's next in this investigative piece for you? Um, I think we want to know more about contracting during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said earlier, there was a lot of federal money coming in, and a lot of it was spent pretty quickly without maybe without the same kinds of oversight that you would have normally in government spending. And I think we need to know more about where that money went and what it was for and what it, what it actually produced. You've been doing this a long time. I've enjoyed reading your your pieces along with some of your other colleagues over the years. We've all covered this in in one way or another. But with this pandemic, which obviously is still ongoing, just your thoughts on on all this as a journalist, not only just covering this with uh, Mrs. Jennifer Dalton, but just in general. Yeah, it's it's been a uh, for as for everybody else. This this past sixteen months now have been unlike anything that, that anybody has ever experienced in this lifetime. And to know that, that the government knew more than it, you know, that it acknowledged and took actions that were contrary to scientific evidence really is disheartening. And you all stand by that because you have the emails that show that despite pleas, calls, whether it was within his own administration, whether it was from science you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and Governor Kemp had stated he was following the science and following the data, but the emails that you all have and the other documents totally contradict that. That's that's correct. Um, he, you know, his his office would say that our conclusions were were too harsh, perhaps, but it's all laid out in those emails. Um, you know, very completely in a in a very. Uh, chronological straightforward way uh when can we expect another piece uh, i don't know <laughs> i sound like your editor alan i, I your deadline is <laughs> um, um i don't i don't know we're, we're we're looking at some options right now and, and waiting to hear from, back from some other uh people that we've contacted so we may we may have something sooner than later Maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but I'll say it anyway. That is why the work that you do and the work that we do in local journalism is so important. Yes, I, it is. And I'm so glad that, that to have this opportunity to, to talk about this work in, in a, to a different audience than maybe who, that reads the newspaper. Absolutely. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, investigative reporter, longtime journalist, good friend of the, of the show, so to speak, Alan Judd. Thank you so much for coming in and taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good to talk. I always love talking to fellow journalists because it's like we're having a beer or water. I can't I'm supposed to say beer on the air, but... Well, thanks very much, Rose. (laughs) Thanks, Alan. And I do like beer. I can say that. I'm I'm over 21. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to always let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other topic we talk about. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And of course, you can always catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. <laughs>